Channel Talks. Every other week, I'll be talking to expert educators about how to best address the most challenging issues in education. I'm your host, Wendy Amato. This week, I'm joined by Shannon Rice. Shannon is a special education teacher with 17 years of experience, and she's a contributing author to the new Teacher's Guide to Overcoming Common Challenges. Today, we're talking about managing behavior. Shannon, we got to jump in with a definition of behavior, don't we? Absolutely. Oftentimes, when we talk about behavior, we picture those things we don't want students doing in our classrooms. But really, behavior is anything a person does at any time. So it could be scratching your nose when it itches, going to get something to eat when you're hungry, or writing down your name on a piece of paper. Those are all behaviors. We sometimes think about the naughty things. Misbehavior becomes the, the definition of behavior. That's wrong. And even thinking about misbehavior, meaning mis means wrong. If we just think about it as what we desire, and then those undesirable behaviors. And we really have to define it before we can talk about how do we address it. I have talked to people before about behaviors. All behaviors are good. It's just whether the context is appropriate. <laughs> like ye yelling at a sporting event, at sporting events, great. Uh, yelling in the classroom, not so much. Exactly, exactly. And that's the fine line when we talk about teaching that we are responsible for, for our students. We have to teach them about their context and what is desirable at each place at each time. Can you share a little bit about what, what you feel are optimal classroom behaviors? Well, when it comes to optimal behaviors, that depends on every single student, your teaching situation, and what that looks like at any given time. Really, each teacher needs to sit down and have that vision. What do they want their space to look like, to sound like, and to function like at different points in their day? What does it look like when students enter the classroom? What does it sound like? Then those are the behaviors you teach. What should it look like when the teacher's instructing a math lesson? Then that's what you teach and go from there. It's what do we want to see? Oftentimes we spend so much time on what goes wrong or what we don't want to see. But we have to start with what should it look like? And that looks different for every teacher in every setting. You've shared with me that you've made a commitment to supporting newer teachers. That's part of why you are a contributing author uh, in this book. Tell me a little bit about how you help a teacher understand how to manage behavior. I really start with new teachers of sitting down and looking at their daily schedule. And it might be looking at one class period and saying, how do you envision this evolving? Are we starting with students entering the room and completing an independent task and then moving into some whole group instruction and then maybe some small group? Are we talking about a kindergarten class where we have different centers that we have to address and group meetings on the carpet? What does it look like? for each part of the day. And then we'll take just one section at a time and we'll actually make a chart and break it down. Here's this setting. What do we want to see? What should it look like? What should it sound like? And then that's how we start by teaching it. But first we have to define it. So I actually make a chart with teachers. And once we have it defined, then that's the stepping stone. I love that you teach teachers the way we want teachers to teach students. Teaching and learning look the same when it's good. <laughs> Absolutely. And good teaching is good teaching, no matter who the students are. 
I hear you being very considerate of the contexts and the different kinds of outcomes that people are working towards. So when you create a chart or you're helping a teacher to get started, what kinds of things are the variables? Some of the variables might be the physical space in which somebody is located. If a teacher is working maybe with intervention groups and they're in a very small space and work with a small group of three students, well, what their space is going to look and function like would be very different than 30 students in a high school English class. So the physical space, the number of students, and what the goals are within that setting. My goals within a small reading instruction group are going to be different than in a whole class instructional group. And having that idea of what's the goal and then how do we get there. Materials are another huge piece. Are your students working completely on digital material? Are we talking pencil and paper? Are we using manipulatives? Are we in a laboratory and we're looking, worrying about lab safety in chemistry class? Some of those pieces all have to be accounted for when we're planning. I have seen teachers uh, with, with desks in rows wondering why students are not collaborating and interacting more. <laughs> and so, sometimes we have to ask ourselves if we're preparing the environment for the behavior that we want. And it uh, sounds like you're asking the right questions. Tell me a little bit more about um, the, the goals of the setting and how that may influence recommendations that you would make. So if your goals are to have students master student certain processes, say in a math class, then you might want to be looking at are students going to be able to view models and samples? Are we talking about pieces being projected so all students can see or is there a central place where instruction happens? How might you arrange furniture so all students can actually see that? Are students going to be collaborating? Do they need to sit with a shoulder partner or at a table where they are face-to-face -to, -face to encourage conversation? Is this a class where they need to have a lot of attention to a single point and maybe we don't want students face-to-face -face for a significant part of their day because their attention needs to be elsewhere? And having the flexibility to move within that, having the idea that you don't have to have one setup for everything you do and being flexible and being willing to move, things don't have to stay exactly as they are. Now we know that during different safety times, you might need that. Right now, a lot of students are still separated with their different types of distancing requirements, but we can still be creative in that and think how are they going to collaborate and not allow our physical space be a barrier to what the goals are. What have we learned about engagement and interaction because we've asked ourselves so many questions in education over the past two years? I think one of the biggest pieces we have learned is that there are more ways to collaborate, to interact, and to demonstrate learning than maybe we had been taking advantage of. If we now have students who can collaborate with each other through shared documents and images and items online from all across, not just their school, but really all across the world. That opens up so many doors. It allows professionals to collaborate with each other. It would have been unheard of in most cases, not less than two years ago, for educators to say, oh, I'm going to hop on a Zoom meeting with teachers in another state just to trade ideas. Now we do that. 
So I think those are huge gains for us and ultimately for our students. I think we've also learned the importance of stepping back and looking at the relationships, the relationships with our students and the relationships with our colleagues. Because if we do not have a firm foundation in our relationships, we don't get to move forward on those checklists of things that we need to accomplish during the year. One of the pieces you've published is titled, But First, dot, 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 Relationships. And I, I love that you've emphasized that. Talk to me a little bit about how people can prioritize what they're doing by emphasizing relationships first. Really, we have to look at getting to the heart of what is it we want our students to be able to do. Ultimately, we want them to be functional, successful, driven members of our society. That involves being able to interact with each other. And if we aren't putting that as a main priority, then we're not going to get to the other things. We also know when we're talking about students who are going to have to try something out of their comfort zone whether it's a struggle that they have to push through or just new material that that's new and maybe a little scary to try something that they might have a hard time with. If there is a trust built with their teacher, they're willing to try, they're willing to work, they're willing to persevere because they trust that that teacher is not going to put them in a situation that they can't overcome. And building that trust, building that relationship first at the beginning, but then maintaining that relationship is really going to pay massive dividends because our students will work for that interaction. I want to stick in the category of relationships for another minute because it is so significant. We're talking about classroom relationships right now, and I don't want people to, to have um, horse blinders on and think that that relationship is only between one student and one teacher. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the classroom dynamics and that, that focus on trust that, that really needs to involve everyone in the room? Absolutely. I think if each person thinks back on who was, who was the teacher that had the greatest impact on them growing mm -hmm. up, mm -hmm. we very rarely think of an educator that only had a relationship with one individual student or only address students as individuals. But we also think of a teacher that brought the class together, that engaged, was interactive, that was just something you anticipated as part of the day, and that that learning involved the relationships. It involved that special banter, those inside jokes, that extra bit, and that extra little bit of personal information that made sure that every student knew that that teacher knew who they were as a person. Whether it was what sports team they enjoy following on the weekend, or what music they were listening to, or what silly dance move was out there that the teacher was going to try if everybody got their homework in the next day and everybody couldn't wait because they just wanted to see that teacher try and dance. Having those little tiny bits gains you trust and ultimately effort and perseverance from your students. So the relationship builds the academic achievement. The example you've described there too, because it's about getting all of the students to work together towards a common goal. <laughs> Let's all get our homework in. Did you get yours done? Have you turned it in yet? That's um, exponentially beneficial in the education process. 
Absolutely. And we think of even, I worked with a colleague whose students would develop their own Greek plays after they studied Greek mythology and just couldn't wait to see as a group what reaction they could get from their peers as to how these things unfolded and the tales that would come out of them. And to have that experience and facilitate that experience as a teacher, that I think is our ultimate goal because that's what our students are learning when they are engaged with each other. And really you can almost as an adult then step back because you have set them up to be successful. Yeah, what you're describing sounds great. Teachers need to sometimes just get out of the way. Let the students, uh, their, let their momentum move them forward towards the learning goal. That's, that's, a, that's a relief and a, um, a reinvestment in our own energy as teachers so that we can uh, enjoy our jobs. Absolutely. I've said, I know when I've done my job and done it well, when my students no longer need me. Time, the time I know I'm most successful is when I am out of work. When my students can do things independently, they don't need me. That's a job well done. Shannon, you shared some guidance on establishing relationships with students in the classroom. Could we talk a little bit also about communication with families? Absolutely. Really, it's the next spoke of the wheel when we talk about relationships. We have you know, student-to-student -student relationships, individual student-to-teacher, whole collective student body-to-teacher, but also between families because learning does not stop at three o'clock when the school bell rings and students get on the bus or walk down the block. Learning is a continual process. We already know how much students bring with them from their homes to school. We need to know what we're sending home as well. And having those different methods of facilitating communication is so critical because that's what sets our students up to continue to learn outside. Let's talk about specific methods of communication. It's, it's not always um, the pinned note on a backpack of a young student heading home in an elementary program. We've evolved. Actually, sometimes those old school methods are actually something more valuable because we don't always see those as oh, often. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, there are so many different ways of communicating with families now. There's email, there are different types of apps that classes and schools can sign up for that facilitate communication. There are different pieces built within learning management systems that can message a parent back and forth. There's phone calls, there's e regular letters. You're sending a postcard in the mail, like the actual snail mail that shows up at somebody's house in hard form and taking advantage of all of those options. There's even the option of walking down the street or getting in your car and driving to a student's house and knocking on the door and saying, hi, I'm here to introduce myself. Nice to meet you. I haven't been able to get in touch with you any other way. I just wanna let you know, I'm here as your kid's teacher and I value your participation in their education. I think it's also important to make sure that we are addressing each individual family's communication needs. That might be some language differences that we have to account for. That might be some different times of day in which families can communicate. That might mean having to have a few extra people in the process to facilitate communication. But those pieces are so important and it pays us dividends 
If we're communicating with families, it pays us back. We also have to consider that the structure of a family varies from household to household, and that may change our communication as well siblings, grandparents, extended families, um, names for relatives that don't fit into what may fit into the next family over. All of that is important to respect in our, in our communication. I love it. You have a degree in school administration as well. Does that influence the care that you put into family relationships, student communication, um, behavior goals? I think it has definitely enhanced many of the skills that I have because it has widened my perspectives. Mm -hmm. It has allowed me to think about other factors that might be at play and given me additional tools and resources to draw upon when it comes to maybe some problem solving and figuring out what might be the next steps when step A, B, and C is not achieving our goals. Is there any advice that you would offer to a teacher in, in how to take advantage of the school administrator in the building or associated with the program? We can look back at the same things when we talk about communication with families is making sure we're communicating with our school leadership, just about what's going on. This is what I'm trying in terms of communicating with this family. This is maybe not working and I need some assistance. Teachers are oftentimes maybe a little hesitant to ask for help from their administrators because they might feel that either asking for help is frowned upon or that they should be able to do it all and manage it all. Mm -hmm. But school leaders are truly there to help support and make sure their staff have the resources that they need. It's amazing what I learned going from different buildings to different buildings when I say, what can you tell me about this family that might help? And the wealth of information that I have gained just by asking some little questions or saying, this is what challenge I'm facing. Oh, you need to try this call and this person at this time of day, you'll get exactly what you need. Perfect. Problem solved. Yeah, so there's, there's a network we can tap into. People forget sometimes we're not alone as teachers. We're part of an education community and we should feel free to lean on one another. Hearing you reminded me uh, when I was a school administrator, I loved it when teachers would say, hey, we're doing something neat in third period. Come on in. I'd love for you to, to observe. And uh, for me to be able to go into the classroom and share those moments and uh, or for a teacher to say, I'm having some trouble in third period. Could you come in and watch the first 15 minutes and give me some feedback on strategies? So uh, all of those um, positives and opportunities for improvement can be places for us to tap into our network. But I, I loved having the personal observation to say, hey, um, I saw Shannon's class this morning doing something terrific and wanted to give her a shout out. Uh, we, it's okay for us to celebrate the good things we're doing in our classrooms. You have quite a bit of classroom experience. Are there any success stories from your own work that you can share with us as an illustration of managing behavior or leading good communication or prioritizing student relationships? Help us, help us paint a picture. One that took place probably many years ago at this point that sticks with me to this day and really still, still kind of tugs at my heartstrings is working with a student who had some, had some moderate to severe disabilities and reached 
kind of the point in middle school where when students join athletic teams, there's always that one game that there's a far travel and there's a longer bus ride. And on the way home, the team stops for fast food. Mm-hmm. That's always the highlight of a sports season. <laughs> when, you live in, when you live in suburban or rural America, when you stop at fast food, that's the thing. Well, I had the parent of the student approach me and I had a positive relationship with this parent to say, my child is not wanting to go to this game because I can't pick her up afterwards and take her home from the game. She'll have to ride the bus and she's afraid to stop and order her own meal. She has never ordered her own food. Oh, She's afraid that they won't understand her Mm -hmm. because she had some language challenges. Mm -hmm. And because I had the relationship with the parent, and I had built some trust with the student. I asked the student, I said, are you willing to work with me on this? And she said, I'm willing to try. She was willing to try. Yes. And so between the parent and the speech pathologist and the student, we practiced. And then we actually took a field trip to a fast food restaurant. So she ordered her own food to practice where she had me as kind of the safety net. We, we went out for lunch one day. And she did it all by herself and she finished and she looked at me and she said, can I go back up and order ice cream? Ah, uh, yes. Oh. <laughs> Tears in my eyes. And we went, we went back home and she looked at her mom and she said, I'll go to the game next week. Yeah. What a story of relationship, communication, trust, family support, everything weaves together for really fantastic student outcome. And we got through a ton of academic work through that as well. We practiced money handling and speech goals and all of the academic pieces we were going to have to address anyway. Real world application of knowledge. Absolutely. And some ice cream at the end. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if there are any myth busters or misconceptions that you'd like to bring to everyone's attention as we think about behavior. Oftentimes when we talk about students who exhibit challenging behaviors, it's portrayed as this is a choice. Students are choosing to Mm. act this way Mm. or they're choosing not to do something that they're supposed to, or they know how they're just not doing it today or they don't want to. But really when we think about behaviors, all behavior is communication. And very often students are not communicating that they don't want to. There is something deeper, whether there is a skill block, whether there's something in the way. And if we start thinking of behavior as communication, then we get to the heart of what's going on. Same thing when we say students are attention seeking. If instead we say they are connection seeking, We look at them in a whole different light and it's easier for us to process how do we address that. That's really thoughtful. I I hope everyone takes a breath and and takes in that nice message. I'm going to bring us in for a landing, Shannon, by thanking you for sharing your expertise and for reminding us to have our priorities in this kind of order for education. What you're talking about makes all the difference in the student outcomes that we all seek for the learners in our care. These are lessons we need. Thank you, Shannon. 
Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank our fellow educators for joining us for this podcast. You all can find the links to topics related to today's conversation in the show notes or at teachingchannel.com slash podcast. If you leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast listening app you use, it will help more educators to find us, and I sure would appreciate it. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>